This is Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen, Orthodox Christian Media's live listener call-in program. Hey, Kevin, long-time listener, first-time caller, love the show. My question is this. You know, we make a big deal of the resurrection, but in the Old Testament, my friends keep asking me why I'm celebrating Easter on a different date. Informative conversation about subjects that matter through the lens of Scripture and the teaching tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Join the conversation by calling 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. And now, here's Kevin. Glory to God for all things, and welcome to Ancient Faith Today on the evening of September 2nd in the U.S. and Monday, September 3rd in other parts of the country where we have listeners, and we appreciate all of our worldwide listening audience on Orthodox Media's only live listener call-in program on contemporary subjects from the perspective of the Eastern Orthodox Church and her holy tradition. And I hope you will call in questions and comments tonight for my guest about the past and future legacy of the Evangelical Orthodox movement within Orthodoxy. And the numbers, as our announcer already stated, are 1-855-AF-RADIO. Numerically, that's 1-855-237-2346. And our screener, Troy, will be taking calls in about 15 or 20 minutes. We'll open up those lines. And our chat room, by the way, is now live. Father John is uh, moderating. So you can chat with other listeners around the world in real time and ask questions that our producer will send to me uh, via email, and that is ancientfaith.com slash ancientfaithtoday. And we're also on Facebook at Ancient Faith Today, and we post useful information about our guests and programs there. And I'd love to have your comments, and while you're there, please press like. We'd like to get up to about 1,000 on those likes. And tonight's callers... Uh, will be entered into a drawing for a beautiful icon from our sponsor, Museum Quality Legacy Icons. That's www.legacyicons.com. And tonight's prize will be Christ Pantocrator from Agia Sophia. It'll be an 8x10 Museum Quality Legacy Icon. And by the way, all Legacy Icons are now guaranteed for life against fading. And this mosaic, perhaps from the 11th or 12th century, is from the Hagia Sophia Church, the Church of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople, which is in modern Istanbul, Turkey. And after the fall of Byzantium to the Turks, the church was turned into a mosque, and the holy icons were plastered over. And some of the images were uncovered in the early 20th century, including this mosaic. So our first five callers will be—actually, all of our callers' names will be entered. And now to our topic— You know, 25-plus years ago, the Eastern Orthodox Church in the U.S. and Canada was, for the most part, comprised largely of generations of immigrants and their families from Greece, Russia, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. Well, in 1987, that singular trajectory changed when a collection of about 20 American churches across the United States called the Evangelical Orthodox Church numbering about 2,000, were received into the canonical Orthodox Church through chrismation by the Antiochian Archdiocese in what was the largest mass conversion in Orthodoxy in North America at that point. Metropolitan Philip Saliba, the current primate of the Antiochians who received them through chrism and ordained some of their former pastors, compared this mass conversion to that of the conversion recounted in the Book of Acts at Pentecost. 
and the journey of the EOC, as they're called, Eastern, uh, the, the uh, uh, Evangelical Orthodox Church, was long. It took 10 years plus. It was often difficult. Many jurisdictional doors were knocked on, and only one opened to them. We'll talk a little bit about that. And some of their members did not make it across the finish line. Now, other conversions of individual former evangelicals, as well as entire churches, have followed. They're not the only one, like Christ the Savior Brotherhood and more recently the Charismatic Evangelical Church, but the entrance of the Evangelical Orthodox broke new ground. It was a significant event within evangelical circles then and now because the entry of rock-solid, card-carrying evangelicals who knew their Bibles as well as anyone and some of them were recognizable figures in the evangelical world, including my guest tonight, made it plausible for other evangelicals, perhaps for the first time, to even consider the ancient Orthodox Church. Well, many of us might not be here today were it not for their pioneering journey. And the leaders who led the EOC to canonical orthodoxy had come out of the para-church movement Campus Crusade for Christ. And among them were Father Peter, Peter Gilquist of Blessed Memory, Father John Braun, my guest tonight, Father Richard Ballou, Father Gordon Walker, Father Jack Sparks, who is still with us, and uh, Ken Bervin. And they, are all, they were all ordained as priests in the Orthodox Church and served in various capacities. Fathers Peter Gilquist and John, uh, Father John Braun were their most recognized leaders and kind of the face of the EOC. And their journey was recounted in the well-known and longtime best-selling book, Becoming Orthodox, by the presiding bishop of the EOC group, Father Peter Gilquist who, again, became the first Antiochian Archdiocese uh, Director of Missions and Evangelism. And Father Peter was also scheduled to appear on this interview with my guest tonight, but sadly, as many of you know, reposed on July 1st. But his friend, fellow sojourner, and my guest tonight, the very Reverend Father John Braun, was one of the leaders of the Evangelical Orthodox. Uh, he is a major, was a major evangelist on college campuses, a stirring preacher and homilist. He was also the director of the campus ministry for the Antiochians and in the missions and evangelism department alongside with Father Peter, planting over 150 churches, including my parish, St. Barnabas. And he's the author of several books and articles and last, the founding pastor of St. Anthony Orthodox Church in La Jolla, California, from which he recently retired. And we're going to be talking tonight on this, the 25th anniversary year of the EOC's entry into canonical orthodoxy, about the journey, the EOC's hopes and dreams, the opportunities and challenges of the Orthodox Church from my guest's perspective. And by the way, before I introduce my guest, if you'd like to hear his sermons, Father John Braun's sermons, they are available in archive form at www.prudence, P-R-U-D-E-N-C-E, True, T-R-U-E, dot com. And Father John Braun, welcome to Ancient Faith Today. You're in studio with me, and you've got quite a studio audience with you this evening. Yeah, I do. And first of all, I'd like to, you know, I'm just really sorry that this didn't work out to have Father Peter here. Absolutely. It was just such a, such a shock to lose him and to lose such a close friend and compatriot. 
uh, a phenomenally unusual relationship. Yeah. So I'm sorry that this didn't work out the way it was planned. Yes, yes, uh, and we are we are too, of course. You know, along that line, Father, why don't you begin by saying a few personal words about your friend, spiritual sojourner, and EOC's presiding bishop, the newly reposed uh, Father Peter Gilquist. You know, the role he, he played in leading the EOC to canonical orthodoxy, his role as an evangelist, the driving force behind the Orthodox Study Bible, etc., I had a long history with Father Peter Gilquist. I met him at the high jump pit at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he was a, I think he was a sophomore, and he was a bad fraternity boy, because all fraternity boys were bad in my mind. And I was an arrogant uh, high school teacher across the Mississippi River. Uh, and we didn't really meet each other. We were aware of each other, but didn't actually meet each other until a few months later when uh, somebody brought uh, Father Peter and Marilyn over to our house. And so that was, a, that was 43 years ago, so we had a long history. He, he was so utterly committed to Christ. When I first met him, I just hadn't met a lot of kids like him. And he was a kid, as far as I was concerned, because uh, I was a good five years or seven years older than he was, so he was very young. But his commitment to Christ just never failed for a moment. I was, I was aware from the day we actually personally conversed, this is an unusual degree of commitment, and that never failed. Hmm. Now, he, he, was, you know, he was the youngest of the... There were seven of us who were in the leadership of the movement. We lost one along the way. But of those that were there, he was definitely the youngest. But we chose him for two reasons. We chose him because he was the youngest. But we also chose him because he was the best organized as far as he just had a remarkable, a remarkable capacity for leadership. And he could keep us calm because he had in the room six or seven extremely strong-willed men. And to get those men to work together in harmony until they worked in harmony took a lot of work. You know, the EOC's journey, again, we're not going to go into every detail of it because you can read that on Becoming Orthodox, which if you haven't, I highly suggest you do. It's really become a classic. You know, it took many years. Um, you knocked on many of the Orthodox jurisdictions' doors before entering through the Antiochian Archdiocese. Um, why was it so difficult? I mean, some would ask, isn't the church supposed to open its doors to those who want to enter? And secondly, anything you would do differently if you had to do it all over again, looking backwards. Secondly, I wouldn't do anything differently looking backwards. Okay. But first of all, the journey actually began uh, in 1966. Now, it wasn't a journey to orthodoxy. In 1966, all of those who became leaders in the Evangelical Orthodox Church were all on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, but we would meet regularly. We spent hundreds of hours together, just hundreds of hours. And we, became, we just became impassioned by the church. We knew that Christ had established the church, and we were in a movement that we very plainly said was parachurch. Now, I'm not going to put down parachurch. But we didn't feel we were called to do parachurch. We believed we were called to do church. So from 1966 on, we were interested in church, but we scattered in 1968. We scattered around the world, literally, went to different places. We all started churches. We were involved in starting churches. We were all going to be the New Testament church. We got together again in 1973, and then we began to realize that, that if 
we've got to find out what this church was like. We knew the Bible really well. But what we didn't know a lot about was what, what actually happened after St. John breathed his last. We, knew, we really did know that from the Reformation on really well, and we knew our Bibles well. So we went back and we began to study what was the New Testament church actually like. And that, to our shock, we ran into the Orthodox church. Hmm. Now, when we found it, believe me, None of us really knew the Orthodox Church existed today. Really? None of us. Uh, Father Gordon Water, Walker, mm. maybe a little bit because he'd spent about six months in Israel one time. Mm. Uh, but we didn't really know what it was like. We didn't know the church existed. Mm. I, I'd heard about the Eastern Orthodox Church, but it, it the was the Greek Catholic Orthodox Church or... in Greece. Yeah, uh, you know, right. We didn't know anything about it. And we ran into the Orthodox Church. I, I remember when we did, and we said, oh, that's the New Testament church. We've got to start it over again. I'm dead serious. We thought it was gone, and we were going to start it over again. Mm. So it, it wasn't until about, oh, maybe 1975 or 6, oh, my goodness, we started running into names like Father John Meyendorf, Father Alexander Schmemann. We began to run into the names of these people, and we thought, oh, my goodness, the thing still exists. And then a priest walked into a school we had in, in, in Santa Barbara, California, and he says, my name's Ted Wojcik, and I'm an Orthodox priest. Mm. And we were just dumbfounded from that day on. Never once was there any doubt of what was going to happen. Really? We were going to become a part of that church. We were, they weren't on trial. We knew we were going to do it, I, literally, from that morning on. Really? But it took another 10 years. That, I think that was in yeah. 1977, and it took us 10 years from there to actually make it into canonical orthodoxy. And you say, why, why wasn't it easy? Well, it wasn't easy. You know, on the one hand, we talk about ethnicity in the Orthodox Church. I want to I temper some things on ethnicity. My dad was raised in an ethnic church. My father's first language wasn't German. It was a weird dialect of German. Plautdeutsch. Plautdeutsch. And he, all of their services were in German. And everybody in the church was German. They were Germans on the run. <laughs> Germans who had left mm -hmm. Germany, Holland, Ukraine, or Russia then, Canada, the United States. And I knew what Annette... One reason my dad left the Mennonite church when he was in, in college was because of the ethnicity. But it's difficult. The Greeks, the Russians, the Arabs, they, and Eastern Europeans, they brought this church here. They, they built the churches. They mortgaged their homes, many of them, in order to build churches. And so I, would, I simply would not put down ethnicity. I understand why ethnicity and your heritage become, and your Christian heritage, your spiritual heritage becomes so in, in, intertwined. Yes, it was ethnicity that was in part the problem. And it, really, the astonishing, remarkable leadership of Metropolitan Philip Saliba is what really sealed the deal. It was just too complicated for them to figure, what do you do with three, because we were 3,000 at the time. What do you do with 3,000 people who want to become Orthodox? They just couldn't figure it out. Now, did they have a problem with bringing 3,000 members in individually, or was the problem the fact that you wanted to come in as churches and as leaders? Both. 
both. There were jurisdictions that were willing to take us one at a time. Right. You know, I, I understand why, because we would have devastated the ethnicity of those parishes. We really would have. Now, and it was difficult to figure, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to leave us alone out there somewhere? That's not really orthodox to just leave people out. So that's that. It was complicated. And it was new ground. It had never really been done before. So there was no model. You know, one, one jurisdiction, they had eight bishops and they were split four and four. Four wanted us. Four. It wasn't that they didn't want us. They just didn't know what to do with us. Yeah. Now, I, I read somewhere, I think, in, in um, uh, Father Alexander Schmemann's With Whom You Were Close journal that he was very, very upset that the OCA, you didn't, you didn't enter through the OCA. And I know there were some Greek bishops that, that wanted you there. I also remember Father Peter Gilquist saying to me, just your comment on this, that it was God's really God's directive that, that you wound up in Antioch, that, that the fit wouldn't have been right anywhere else. I believe that with all my heart. First of all, you, why? I'm not saying that other hierarchs weren't visionaries, okay? But when you get right down to it, this, this uh, uh, Metropolitan Philip is just really unusual as, as a visionary. He, he wanted in every way to make sure we got in. We had gone to Istanbul or Constantinople. It, we were on our way home from, from Constantinople, and we had an appointment with Metropolitan Philip Saliba the Monday after we finally got home. Uh, Father Peter's daughter, one of his daughters and one of my sons, but we got home on about Wednesday. They got married on the weekend, and then that next Monday, we were with Metropolitan Philip and, and the, uh, the Patriarch of Antioch. Mm. And uh, I remember Metropolitan Philip saying, uh, we will take care of this very quickly, uh, which was, that was music to our ears because we'd really been turned away in Constantinople. We, we had been rejected. Right. I mean, you could be a pilgrim on the street and gotten in, but we couldn't. But we were a problem they, because the pilgrim on the street wasn't trying to get in, and we were. We knocked on doors. We said we're going to knock on Constantinople first, then we're going to go to we're going to go right. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to go to Antioch. We're going to go to Alexandria. We're going to go to all the patriarchates, and, and we're going to get in. And there so, was no way we weren't going to get in. Was it a political problem that, that kept some people from wanting you to go? Did you go over somebody's head? Is that what happened? Or No, we didn't go over anybody's head. Uh, at least I don't believe we went over anybody's head. I don't even remember if we've been accused of that. They simply didn't know what to do. What do you do with 3,000 uh, pretty strong evangelicals who now, you know, we, we hated infant baptism for the most part. We hated liturgy. I, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, Mary, the four-letter word. Uh, what, what do you do with people that you sort of... They, they didn't even think you were Christians 10 years before, and now they mm -hmm. want to join you? What do you do with them? Interesting. I'm speaking with Father John Braun. Our subject tonight is the past and future legacy of the evangelical orthodox movement within canonical orthodoxy, and we're going to open the phone lines. The number is one af radio That's one 237 2346. Our chat room is ancientfaith.com slash ancientfaithtoday. And I'm going to ask a favor. If you're listening, try to have your questions kind of go with the flow of where we are in this conversation, um, not just out, you know, out of left field questions, uh, if you can. And if not, we'll, we'll answer them anyway. So thanks. Father, what was your, when you, when you finally did come in and you've been through this long journey 
and you'd been rejected, you know, by Constantinople, not accepted by, you know, other jurisdictions. And you finally came in. There was this great feeling of elation. Um, I've read that. I've talked to you. I've talked to Father Peter. Getting down to brass tacks, though, what was your vision and or the leader's vision of the, uh, from the EOC and dream for the evangelical Orthodox within the EOC and Christian culture at large on that day in 1987 when you were brought in on Moss, you know, 2,000 of you, new members, chrismated and some ordained. What was the vision and dream? What did you think you wanted to see happen? And then we'll talk about in what ways it did happen or not. First of all, uh, let, let's say the dream that we had then that at least as I understood it, and I, I really do believe we all understood the same dream, is exactly the same dream I have for today. That has not changed to the right or to the left, a jot or a tittle. It is exactly the same dream. First of all, we wanted to be a part of the historic Christian church. That should be obvious. You must also understand that we were we were just utterly captured by the, by the idea of the kingdom of God. And we wanted to experience that kingdom. And the only place we could experience it in this age w- was in the church. And we understood that. Okay, but we also had the dream because if we brought, uh, a, if we brought something with us, we brought an evangelistic fervor. We had all worked as evangelists. I can remember times uh, I would be in a in a service with Metropolitan Philip, and and he would look at me and he'd say, "Father John, you are an evangelist. We pray for you every Sunday in the liturgy. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and we we had this dream, this vision of bringing orthodoxy to America. That hasn't changed a bit. As a maybe a little way differently, Metropolitan Philip, he said, "Our forebears brought orthodoxy to America." Now. I want you to bring America to orthodoxy. That's still the dream. I believe Americans want, many Americans really want to know the truth about the church. They, they do, they're sincere, they're earnest. Most of the people I came from as evangelicals were extremely uh, fervent Christians. My parents were fervent Christians. I was raised in a home where there was never an idea of anything besides a fervent Christian. We were utterly committed to Christ as far as we knew it. Now, take that. I believe there are, just, there are still just literally millions of people out there who would become orthodox in a relatively short period of time. I still believe it's going to happen. Perhaps it's taking longer than I would have anticipated. I, I like to add water and stir. I would have liked to happen in a month. But it didn't, it, I believe it will happen. I believe the doors are still open. We are a growing church today. Well, we'll talk, we're going to talk about some of those demographics uh, in a minute. I want to follow up though on one thing that you said, because if we have any evangelical listeners, they may uh, either take exception to this or want you to uh, follow up on that or, or me to have you follow up on that. And you said something along the lines of you were obsessed with, fixated on, completely focused on experiencing the kingdom of God, and you knew that you could only do that in the church. Now, you know that's not what evangelicals, many evangelicals believe. So kind of explain how you got there and what that means in your view. Okay, now, now uh, first of all, I, I, I'll do most anything I can to not badmouth any evangelical. I was Please. a card-carrying evangelical. 
and I'm not the least bit ashamed of it, and I'm so grateful for the way that I was brought up. However, uh, my commitment, as far as I understood my commitment to Christ and what I was to do, I was to preach the gospel. In a nutshell, if you would have asked me in one sentence, what is the gospel? If you'd have asked me this 25 years ago, I would have said, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. I was bothered by that for one reason, because I knew from the time I was a small child, but we memorized scripture every single, every single day in my home when I was growing up. I mean, every day. Wow. We didn't skip. I knew that the message Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you can focus on what Jesus preached, or you can focus. It's wonderful that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. I believe that with all of my heart, but that's not what Jesus presented. That's what he did. But his gospel, the good news, was about the kingdom. And once that got into our, our minds, into our hearts, and that got into all of us, it wasn't one of us, it was all of us, then how do we experience that while we are still living in this age? Well, it isn't taking a Starbucks to church on Sunday morning. It isn't pleasant music. It's far more than that. It's experiencing the reality of the kingdom of God, to use scriptural language uh, in the old King James, because that's where I memorized it, and earnest of our inheritance. Well, in where I came from, that, that experience of the kingdom was sort of mental. But I began to understand, and we began to understand together that the experience of the kingdom is to be, there's a place to experience it now, and that is in the church. After Pentecost. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what became so vital to us. Uh, it's nice to just meditate on the kingdom and think, well, that's nice and it's pleasant and Jesus is going to come back again and we're going to live with him forever and, you know, and we'll be kings and priests. We understood all of that. But you, you, you have to have some concrete, something to grasp, hold to you while you're living in this age. And incidentally, well, not so incidentally, if you have a vision of the kingdom of God, it's much easier to live in a world that's full of garbage. Because you at least know that it's not always going to be this way. Someday there's a new heavens and a new earth, and there's a great king, and there's going to be an eternal kingdom, and this is all over. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that evangelicals struggle with is this idea that, that the church is, is visible and real and historic, and it's not simply the collection of those that, that gather in the name of Christ. You know, I, I couldn't agree with that, with what you just said more. The, if somebody said, you know... Uh, uh, that my wife was merely a mental image, you know, that she, she's just a theoretic thing, but, but we really don't like her. Uh, you know, she, she's, we, we just don't think she's super attractive. We like the idea of her, but not her. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would be offended. But it's the same way with Jesus. We say the church is his body, but then, then we turn around and it, now I, was, uh, I was a big bad mouth of this. I, I really bad mouth. Uh, what I would, what I called organized Christianity, and, and I had to, I had to turn from that. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean you just take on everything that's called Orthodox Christianity because there's, there's so many million. Well, that's an exaggeration. At least twenty seven hundred pieces that are all claiming to be part of the church, and, and we, we just sort of say, well, you know, we're just all part of the same thing. And that means you're really not a part of much of anything. It's a theory. You need reality. 
So you don't buy into the many branches. I don't buy into the branches, and I don't buy into a church I can't touch. A body's a body. If you can't touch mm. it, you're, what are you doing? Talking to a ghost? You know, we have um, a few minutes left before we take our first break, Father. And, and this next one's going to be a big question, but I'm going to try to get it in. Uh, and, and if we, you don't finish it all, we'll take a break and come back. And that's this. Um, on the St. Anthony Parish site, your, your ex-parish that you founded there. One Sounds of, like my ex-wife. <laughs> uh, it, it says of you, quote, he still concentrates on the development of a thoroughly American church that adheres faithfully to the 2,000-year tradition of the Orthodox Church. So what does a thoroughly American Orthodox Church look like to you? Because, and, and I ask, because, you know, you and I both know, I think, that not everybody wants to see the Orthodox Church become, quote, a thoroughly American church. We have Grecophiles, we have Russophiles, we have immigrants, we have people that think that any um, westernization of orthodoxy via music or anything else is corruption. So what would an American Orthodox Church look like to an ex-leader of the evangelical Orthodox movement? First of all, I think that every church, I think I mentioned this already, but I believe every church is ethnic. Every church. I went to a church this morning that's ethnic, uh, sort of middle American. Uh, <laughs> and, and I heard Byzantine music, and I heard some, some uh, Russian music, and, and that was fine. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Uh, let me use Russia for just a minute. R- Russia was dominated, I don't mean this in a nasty sense, but it was dominated by Constantinople for at least a couple hundred years. Now, if you walk into a Greek Orthodox church today and you walk into a Russian Orthodox church today, you are aware that even though they're doing exactly the same liturgy, you can tell a difference in the sound. That sound didn't take place in the Russian church a week after Russia, the czar decided he wanted to take his people to Orthodoxy. It takes time. The, the, the church will, it will enculturate. It can't help it. It was Jewish to start with, for goodness sakes, and it was recognizable to Jews. Now, I also understand, let me just use the Greeks. I understand why Greeks want to keep the thing Greek. I, I understand that. But at the same time, what is going to happen, and you can't stop it, It won't stop for anybody. The church will become familiar. The sound will become familiar to an American's ears. One day I was in a a car with a delightful Arab priest, just a marvelous guy. And on the radio, there was some, in his car, he just picked me up at the airport, and there was some music playing. And I said, what church is that? And he said, that's not a church. That's the most popular singer in Lebanon. And it sounded to me like church music. Mm. Now, I, I want the sound. Don't misunderstand me. Mm. I don't want rock and roll in church. And I'm not even ready to sing A Mighty Fortress Is Our God or The Church Is One Foundation. Mm. I love those. Mm. But I'm not ready for those in church. But I'll tell you what I want in church. It must be recognizably church music. Now, you know, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God was actually words put to a German drinking song. I I don't even want that to happen here. I don't want that to happen, but I recognize, uh, I love Byzantine music. I hated it at first. 
I mean, it was snake charming and all that, you know, all those nasty words that get said. Mm. I have learned to love it. And I love to hear uh, Russian music. And there's a difference. There is a difference. But I understand them both as being church music. I don't think we're going to find music, I, you know, in, in a culture, music becomes one of the, one of the huge issues. It's, music is one of the major expressions of a culture. So I believe that, that over a period of time, you will, we're seeing it. We are seeing music develop that has that sound. Now, understand me, I don't want one single word of the divine liturgy to be changed. Oh, we need to upgrade a few translations. Oh, you know, that's sort of incidental. But I don't, th- I don't want a word changed. But how that is presented, that is going to, that will undergo some development. We're not singing the same music today in the Greek church that Peter and Paul sang. Right. So, so your point being that eventually the church will uh, naturally enculturate and it will start will. to sound more American without changing its orthodox theology and its or- orthodox uh, ethos. And I don't even know if American is exactly what the, the word I want. It's, it's just something that is recognizable to someone in the culture right. and not off-putting initially. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, and then we're going to take a break. Uh, you know, when you, li- when you go to Tan- Tanzania, as some of our youth have from my parish, and you go there, their, their liturgies have drums, their liturgies have African chants, and it is very enculturated. It sounds African. It doesn't sound um, Alexandrian, which is the jurisdiction that, that, that they are under. So that's interesting. Well, we're going to uh, come back in a minute, but before we do, I want to mention that St. Catherine College in San Diego recently announced the commitment to establish the Reverend Father Peter E. Gilquest Endowed Chair of Theology. And I'd really like to um, see our listeners become donors for that, even small amounts. This is going to be a wonderful opportunity to honor the great legacy of uh, uh, Father Peter Gilquist. It will um, support faculty teaching and research as well as student research scholarships in the areas of missions and evangelism, which, of course, Father Peter was committed to his entire life. He had a big thumbs up for St. Catherine College. Uh, And so um, please uh, pray about this. And and if your heart's in it, please uh, contact Diana Fowler, the Director of Development at St. Catherine's. That's 760-943-113. Zero seven. And I then, love St. Catherine College. I love it. And, 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 and Father John Braun gives it thumbs up. So we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll uh, take a call from Evan from Montreal, who wants to follow up a little bit more on orthodoxy in America. Ancient Faith Today with Kevin Allen will be back in a moment. In the meantime, we invite your calls at 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. The entire Bible is the Bible of the Church. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament belongs to the disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's important not just to read the New Testament, but to read the Old Testament as well. Many Christians see the Old Testament as the Other Testament, a source of exciting stories to tell the kids, but not very relevant to the Christian life. 
The Christian Old Testament reveals the Hebrew Scriptures as the essential context of Christianity, as well as a many-layered revelation of Christ Himself. Follow along as Father Lawrence Farley explores the Christian significance of every book of the Old Testament in his new book, The Christian Old Testament. Available now from Conciliar Press, this book will help you understand and appreciate the context of the Christian faith. Get your copy at conciliarpress.com. That's conciliarpress.com. Looking for a good source for Orthodox crosses and jewelry? Your friends at Gallery Byzantium are devoted to researching and developing new designs and products of the early Christian, Byzantine, and Slavic aesthetic traditions, and they are constantly introducing new designs to their collection. Find out more at gallerybyzantium.com. That's gallerybyzantium.com. Lines are open for your call. The number is 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Here, once again, is Kevin Allen. Welcome back to Ancient Faith Today, and we're having a great conversation with Father John Braun. Father uh, was one of the well-known leaders of the Evangelical Orthodox Church movement that, uh, with 2,000 or so others, uh, in really historic move uh, in the uh, North American continent, uh, became canonically Orthodox and, and en masse, uh, conversion into the Antiochian Archdiocese, and we've been talking about that uh, evolution and that journey and uh, uh, American Orthodoxy. And I actually have a call, we have a call rather, from Montreal, Canada, from Evan, who wants to kind of follow up on that same theme. Evan, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Can you guys hear me? How are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? Good. Nice to, nice to talk to you. What's your question for Father John? Hi, Father John. Um, the thought that I did have when speaking about Orthodoxy in the Americas, because you did mention that there would be plenty of people that would be ready to come into the Orthodox Church in a heartbeat, which I don't doubt that, not for a second. I do have faith that that would happen. But given how Western Christianity, you know, has been in the West, you know, it, it was pretty much there since the beginning of the Americas anyways, so it was raised under those, that kind of Christianity. Now, I do know that when I came into the Orthodox Church that I had to unlearn everything that I had learned because at first I used to be crazy about looking at, you know, Christianity and knowing everything that there was about it. But then I found out, you know, most of what I thought was completely wrong. That was a hard pill to swallow. I had to start fresh about, you know, what salvation was, what our interpretation of how really, you know, how how we consider it, uh, the Virgin Mary, icons, uh, everything. So how how would we even go about it, considering that there's a lot for people to unlearn? It's a long road. It, it is a long road, but it, it is not a road that needs to be hurried. There, there's plenty of time. I, uh, I had 20 years... And I had a good 10 years. I had 20 years where I was involved with men, strong personalities who were seeking the church, but also 10 years specifically looking for orthodoxy. It doesn't, it doesn't have to happen in a day. 
And I agree with you in uh, most of what you said, at least, maybe everything. Uh, yes, there is some unlearning to do. However, my father, a Presbyterian minister, was totally Trinitarian. My father had no doubt about the deity of Christ. My father believed in the virgin birth of Christ. My father believed in a bodily resurrection. I didn't have to relearn those things. Uh, Mary was a big problem to my dad, but my dad grew up a Mennonite. Uh, nothing against Mennonites. Uh, I, I love that heritage. But Mary is a really big problem in that tradition. Yes, there are things we, we do need to relearn, but it takes, you know, it takes time. One thing I love about evangelicalism is evangelicals, for the most part, really want to it. They want to learn. They want to go to Bible studies. They want to learn things. They don't assume they know it all. Uh, we, we might have acted like we knew it all, but we were always, we wanted to know more. We went to the next conference, the next spiritual life conference, the next thing. We wanted to get on. We wanted to move on with it. Well, I believe, I believe the, most, the people most interested in becoming Orthodox will be evangelical Christians. I believe, Kevin in, and uh, Evan, Evan, I believe that of the most number of people of that 2,000 that came with us, I believe at least 40% of them were Baptist by heritage. So it, there's time. There are some things to relearn. And, and, you know, people come across the Orthodox Church, and as I say, the first time you walk into an Orthodox Church, it's hard. I, I remember my first experience in an Orthodox Church. I stood there, and I said, why do we have to say everything so many times? <laughs> Why do we have to repeat all these prayers? And I didn't like it. And I stood there and I said, I don't like this. And I know I am going to do it. And I know I'm going to become a priest in it. Mm. So it's just time. It takes, it takes time to learn. Mm. Evan, uh, does that answer your question? Uh, it does. Can I just ask one quick follow-up to sure. that? Sure. Okay. Uh, now, given when, when all you guys did come into the Orthodox Church, because um, yeah, you did mention that there were others, of course, that didn't follow along, right? You know, interestingly enough, probably 80% of those have become Orthodox. Uh, I, I can't give, that may not be the accurate figure, but all but about three, uh, one of our churches split in half. I mean, literally, 98, 97. Uh, but and two we lost, two small ones we lost. But otherwise, they've most of them have come subsequently. Okay, because my thought with that was that because all of them. I mean, when I also read uh, Becoming Orthodox, also you know the impression was given that these were all genuine people that really, without a shadow of a doubt, they have a love for Christ. You know, and they would go to his church. Right now. Just that I have difficulty understanding why they wouldn't follow along. Well, people have different agendas. And I, I you know, sometimes people really want to, uh, you know, if you want a church, if you want to make a church of 10,000, don't become Orthodox. Uh, it just doesn't, it's not going to work that way. Frankly, I, I'm not comfortable with a mega church. I want a church that's where I can know, where I can relate, where I know the people. I want to know the name of everyone in my parish. I have to know the name of everyone because I've got to serve communion to them by name. And I, I, I think some people were with us that uh, you know, it was just nice if we could have mammoth churches and be popular and everybody be recognized. 
but that was pretty much a question of leadership. And those leaders are gone, and they're actually gone from their parishes. A couple of them still have a little group, but that's it. Otherwise, most of by, them did come in. By the way, Evan, uh, I, I, I want to correct something here, and it's my fault. I'm not just interested in an American Orthodox Church, since you're from Montreal. I'm interested in a North American Orthodox Church, because uh, we're not that far apart, culturally speaking. Well, no, I didn't doubt that for a second. Uh, I already assumed that from the get-go anyways. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate your call. All right, thank you. You're welcome. So, um, David from the chat room, Father John, wants to know how former Protestants can be a positive influence on the reunification of the American church. Speaking of, I'm, I'm assuming he's speaking of administrative unity and all of that sort of thing. Again, that's going to take some time. Uh, one thing I love about the Orthodox Church, I, I think it even demonstrates something miraculous. We are the worst organized church on the face of this earth. <laughs> we have no administrative center. We have no one who speaks for us all. We don't have a pope. We don't have anything that vaguely represents a pope. We don't vote. We don't... <laughs> It's astonishing how this thing has survived except by a miracle of God and that we don't change. Our theology simply has remained constant, uh, just catching up where we're accused of being wrong. And it's really our theology, isn't it, that unifies us? It's our th- we, we aren't that disunited. Now, the question, I assume, has to do with administrative uh, unity. I'm assuming that too, yes. And I think administrative unity will take time. I don't want to accuse any hierarch of wanting to, uh, to to be the top dog in his pool because I don't I don't know if they even think about such things. It's difficult to take what, how many what are there thirteen major Orthodox jurisdictions twenty in, twenty twenty to twenty one is actually. that right I yeah. mean you've got Serbs you've got Romanians yeah, right. you've got Russians you've right. got Greeks you and all of this and they've been they've been doing their thing. All these years, it doesn't need to happen tomorrow. Now, this may shock you. I'm not excited about having administrative unity tomorrow. Hmm. Let it take place in its time. We, we all do the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom on Sunday. We all have vespers. We all have matins. We don't have services that vary. We just have languages that vary. But don't you think administrative unity um, would aid and abet better communication of the gospel from an orthodox standpoint, from that vantage point? I, I actually believe that strongly. I remember one day we were turning onto a freeway and Metropolitan Philip, we were talking about orthodox unity and we were turning onto the freeway. Uh, I don't even know why I remember that little incident. He said, it is too late to stop orthodox unity in America. It, it will happen. But it's going to take the, you know, the passing of some of the people in the present. If you talk to young people in, in the Orthodox yeah. churches in America, they are very much for administrative True. unity. It's going to yeah. happen. Well, again, remember, you're dealing then with, in many cases, with second, third, fourth generation mm-hmm. Americans whose ancestry could be 
Russian or Greek, but but they really don't have the the ethnic barriers that some of the mm. first generations do. Um, by the way, I want to re, uh, recount our number. It's one eight five five AF radio. That's numerically one eight five five two three seven two three four six. And lines are wide open. We're ready to take your call. Troy, our screener, will uh, screen you, and we'll get you on with Father John Braun, uh, ex bishop actually of the Evangelical Orthodox Church. Ooh, I'm impressed. Yeah. Uh, and our chat room is ancientfaith.com slash ancientfaithtoday. Father, I have a question from the chat room from Anthony, and that is, while it's popular to focus on differences, what are the remains of Orthodox theology in Wesleyan, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational, and other evangelical theologies that can be utilized to help connect many to their Orthodox Roots. And you spoke a little bit about that in terms of your father and your grandfather and, and the basics. Anything else you want to add to Anthony's question? Oh, there's a lot there, Anthony. That's a remarkably good question because, uh, number one, John Wesley is one of my very favorite people. I love John Wesley. Do you know, Anthony, that John Wesley translated on horseback often while he was riding the horse? He would be translating the fathers of the church into English so he could teach his unlettered preachers, the, 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 West, the, the Methodist preachers, so he could teach them the doctrines of the historic church. Mm. Now, here's some, here's some orthodox doctrines. Here's some. The, the canon, what books are in the Bible? Where did that come from? Now, there's going to be some listeners that are going to say, oh, no, it didn't. I say, oh, yes, it did. It's the Orthodox Church that decided what books are in the Bible. It, the Bible didn't float down as it is right now. It was what was to be in and out was decided in the ancient church, and it's never been changed. Now, the Trinity, that's an Orthodox doctrine. The Reformers believed it. Now, when you speak, let me just interrupt. When you say Orthodox, you mean the greater uh, uh, one holy Catholic apostolic church of that time before the splits. But that's all there was. Right, right. right. I just want to confirm because yeah, people exactly. might be thinking of the current Orthodox church. No, yeah. There only was an Orthodox church. I mean, you could call it one holy Catholic and apostolic. You could call it Orthodox. But there was just one church right. for, for over a thousand years. And even after the split, it didn't make, not everything became different. Okay, but the doctrines of the reformers, let's put it, John Calvin showed up in Geneva, and one reason he was so immediately well-received, the man could quote the fathers by heart. Hmm. He just knew vast amounts of what the fathers of the church had taught. And what's so interesting is that some of these uh, early reformers believed things that modern evangelicals now deny, like, for an example, the ever-virginity of the Virgin Mary. And things like that, they actually believed what we believe, and yet evangelicals who call themselves Cal call themselves Calvinists have rejected many of these. Oh, absolutely! Luther taught his priests how to do confession. The, the 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 goal of John Calvin, the goal of Martin Luther. You know, I used to have in my on my journey to historic Christianity, I didn't have icons yet, exactly, but I had three pictures in my study. I had Martin Luther. I had John Calvin, and I had John Wesley. Hmm. What they wanted was to, their goal was to get back to historic Christianity. They knew it wasn't there. That's why they are called re 
reformers. Of course, they were rejecting then the Latin They were Western rejecting the, the papal church. And, you know, even for the most part, Roman Catholic scholars today say, yeah, there was a problem. But it's not that we're all on the same page, because we're not all on the same page. But you must understand that the reformers really didn't conceive of anything that was too far from historic orthodoxy. They wanted to get back to it. And they weren't going to go back to just Peter and Paul in the, in the sense of, you know, we're just going to have little house churches or something like that. That's not what was in their mind. But you have to understand the huge geographical division at, in that century and for centuries before that between East and West. You know, we didn't have the internet. We, we didn't have the telephone. We couldn't figure out what... Westerners simply did not know what was taught in the ancient church. Yes, there were some Easterners. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, a, a contemporary in, in, of Martin Luther, right there in Wittenberg. Really, a systematic theologian. Yeah, he had an Orthodox guy in his home for six months. And they, were, they became aware of, of Eastern Christianity... But it was just so difficult. But the Lutherans, there were many Lutherans who they wanted to get back to this same thing. It was just complicated yeah. in, in the one dialogue we have with one right. of the patriarchs. It's just like two ships passing in the night. Yeah, I think that's one of the great tragedies in, 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 uh, uh, in, in Christian history that the post-Reformation church that was starting to communicate with, uh, I can't recall the patriarch at the time, maybe you do, but it, it, it just kind of, it was like two ships passing in the night. They were speaking different languages, literally and figuratively. They just didn't understand each other. The patriarch thought that the that the reformers were a bunch of upstarts. And the reformers, honestly, I think their attitude was pretty good. But they 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 knew what they had gone through. They had done a lot of suffering. They, there, were, there were huge problems. That, I mean, Luther wasn't exactly widely accepted in his time by the Roman church. There were problems. Yeah. And so uh, to have the, they just didn't understand where yeah. one another were coming from. Yeah. And but I don't take that as, I agree it's a tragedy on the other hand, in God's time. Yeah. Uh, Father, I have a uh, question from Scott from the chat room, and he wants to know, how, how would you suggest introducing orthodoxy to a believing Calvinist spouse? Whoa. Uh, you know, and to be very blunt, since I come from a Calvinistic background, now, granted, my father was a Mennonite, and they're not Calvinists. But you know, my father was educated essentially in a Calvinist, uh, Calvinistically oriented college, uh, and he was uh, educated in a moderately Calvinistically or, uh, oriented seminary. So, and I would have called myself a Calvinist. The problem with Calvinism, it, it, not so much with John Calvin, is the way we see so much of Calvinism today. It's a head trip. It's mental. Uh, it, it isn't something you experience, and, and the mystery gets taken out. I, I am in the middle of a book by a person who would essentially be uh, a card-carrying Calvinist. I just get so frustrated. I, it, it's just so tedious that it's such a mental trip. There's no mystery left. There's no, there's no miraculous left. It's, you just have to have the whole thing straight in your head, and it's very difficult to, to have to settle for the reality of, of a living, vibrant, breathing church uh, who isn't that interested in having these 
intricate uh, theological discussions. And word parsing and yeah, uh, translation. That and go so nowhere yeah. except to another division. Yeah. So any, any particular council or oh, just yeah. in general? Just great patience. Uh, a huge amount, over and over again. Uh, you didn't ask for this, but you're going to get it. I'm just a few, I'm not a, I'm a very few days away from 80. Okay, in 80 years, I've learned that many things given time just will work well. Don't hurry. I know people who have had spouses that were 20 years coming along, and they made it, and some don't. Yep. You just have to be patient. I believe I have a call. I do have a call, actually, from uh, Bill from Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. Bill, are you on the line? Yes, I am. How are you this evening? I'm fine. How are you all? Very, very uh, interesting conversations tonight. Thank you. It's our pleasure to have you in on the conversation. And uh, what's your question for Father John Braun, please? Well, I'm uh, currently a United Methodist pastor of 29 years, and... Uh, uh, on my way on the Orthodox path, uh, I just recently been accepted for the St. Stephen's course. Um, my question is concerning the Western Rite, and uh, I heard earlier in the discussion that a lot of times when uh, Protestants come into an Orthodox service, they're somewhat overwhelmed uh, by the liturgy. Uh, for me, uh, the Western Rite makes that even much that much more attractive because it's really not that different uh, from much of the liturgy that I'm using now. So I guess, how is the Western Rite looked upon by the greater body of Orthodoxy? That's Great a, question. Yeah, that's a little difficult to answer, because uh, in our archdiocese, I'm in the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese, and in our archdiocese, uh, the Western Rite is, is fully accepted. The experience that we've had over the years is that many times people will come in as Western Rite, but then the very church itself, the very parish itself, requests to become Eastern Rite. Now, uh, when I first became Orthodox, I was interested in taking both. I actually, uh, I was in collegiate ministry, and I was also involved with missions and evangelism, and I was interested in doing both. Uh, but... As the years have gone by, though I have no problem with the Western Rite, and there are people within a few miles of where I'm sitting right now, there's a very fine Western Rite parish. So I think we may see more from that. I would say on the broad scale, Western Rite isn't received as well by all Orthodox jurisdictions. I think that's fair, but ours does. And, and the and the, the uh, Rokor does the, the Russian Orthodox yeah, they, Church outside yeah, of Russia in does fact, too. I'm aware of a, a, a there was a priest who was with me at Saint Anthony in San Diego. There was a layperson who is now uh, a priest, a uh, 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 Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, uh, with a Western Rite parish. The just keep on your journey. That's what I would urge. Uh, again, I. It's what you're comfortable with, but one thing I, I don't want you to get away uh, without hearing. I love John Wesley. <laughs> and, uh, and if I love John Wesley, I love Charles Wesley even more. I haven't I the understand. slightest doubt if Charles Wesley were living today, he would be an Orthodox musician. <laughs> Not the slightest. Yes, I'm dead serious. 
The stuff he wrote is so orthodox that it's beyond imagination. Yes, it is. I, I just recently did a Bible study with uh, with uh, one of the churches that I serve, and and basically I just did a side by side comparison without telling them where the origination was. And on one side I had basic, the basic tense of orthodoxy, and the other side it was John Wesley, and and went back and forth, and they were just amazed when I when I told them that no, this is actually orthodox thought that John Wesley you know, also believe, and, and they, they just, no one's really taking the time to explain that. So, Bill, we're going to need to take a break. Thanks for your great question. It really was terrific. It's great to talk to you. Thank you very much, Kepler. You're welcome. Keep listening. Thanks. And uh, I am speaking with Father John Braun, and our topic is uh, the past and future legacy of the Evangelical Orthodox movement within canonical orthodoxy. Our number is one eight five five af radio one eight five five two three seven two three four six. Father, I've got about a minute before we break. So, so, bottom line, looking back, it's been a good fit between the EOC movement and Antioch. But are, are there? I'm, I'm going to press you a little bit. Any areas of dis, uh, disappointment or areas of improvement that you? want to put yourself on the line and speak about? Well, between, I don't know how much time you have here, if you want to do it a little bit later, because I'd probably say two or three things. Number one. Why don't, why don't you hold it? I okay. think this is going to be important I enough. I think it's really important. I'm not going to let you go on that one. Yeah, I think it'll be a good yeah, one. I'd like to have a little spot. So, sounds good. So we'll take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll be talking with Father John Braun about some of the areas of disappointment, uh, perhaps, or uh, areas where he thinks that uh, there could be some improvement. And, uh, we're very open to your calls. Ancient we'll talk to you soon. We'll be back in a moment. In the meantime, we invite your calls at 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Hi, this is John Maddox, and I have some good news for you. The new and greatly improved AFR app is now available for the iPhone, iPad, and Android devices. Our new app gives you access to all of our podcasts and specials, as well as our streaming radio stations. After you've downloaded and enjoyed the content, you can share it with your friends via Twitter, Facebook, or email. To get our new free app, go to the Apple or Android stores today. The AFR app, another exciting new feature from Ancient Faith Radio. walk in the woods with her angel. For everything Annie hears in the woods, a frog, a bird, a brook, a breeze, the angel hears a corresponding song of praise in heaven. In What Do You Hear, Angel? The new book by Concilia Press, young children learn that heaven and earth are not so very far apart after all. What Do You Hear, Angel? Available now from conciliapress.com. That's conciliapress.com. are open for your call. The number is 1-855-AF-RADIO. That's 1-855-237-2346. Here once again is Kevin Allen. And welcome back to Ancient Faith Today. And we're speaking with Father John Braun, who is in studio with his entourage. You almost 
feels like a bishop is with me today, but uh, it's Father John, and um, we're talking about the legacy of the Easter of the Evangelical Orthodox Church in the Eastern Orthodox Canonical Church. And I have been advised that I uh, misspoke in my intro or in one of my segments when I mentioned that uh, one of the uh, EOC leaders was alive who's not. Actually, the only two that are still with us are Father John Braun and Father Gordon Walker. Walker. So I want to clarify mm-hmm. that. So Father, uh, caring, uh, picking back up where we were just before we broke, talk a little bit about the disappointments in the areas of improvement within Antioch or within canonical orthodoxy that, that are on your, that, that, that get you annoyed or upset or how you feel? I don't know if those are the right words, but I've got to say one thing first, Kevin. This is, you've provided a very unusual occasion today. Relatively rarely today, right here, all five of my sons are present. You know, <laughs> that's very difficult for us uh, because uh, my youngest is 45. So to get all these kids together, is, is, this is just really a delight. Now, I don't want to use the word disappointment, uh, but, well, in one sense, yes. One thing, when I first became Orthodox, there were so many priests, so many clergy in Santa Barbara that I asked Metropolitan Philip if I could go to St. Nicholas Cathedral in Los Angeles when I wasn't on the road. He, assigned, he, he created a Department of Campus Ministry, and I was to be responsible for that. So I was on the road a great deal, which was marvelous because it put me in, in many Sundays in a different Orthodox church. So I, I, I quickly saw how much there was. But I went to St. Nicholas Cathedral when I was home. It was 105 miles, and I didn't mind the drive at all. And I loved being at St. Nicholas Cathedral. And I just couldn't, there is no way on this earth that I could imagine I could have been treated better. It was such a delight. And I loved what I saw as I traveled. One disappointment I have, and this may shock some people, I see a legalism entering into orthodoxy in some ways. Some of it from converts, but some of it from, what I don't like to use this word, but cradle. I mean, it's sort of a monastic piety. I grew up in a legalistic environment. You don't smoke, drink, swear, chew, dance, go to card, play cards, go to movies. I mean, these were absolute things you didn't do. You might, you might have a garbage mind, but as long as you did these externals, you were you were spiritual. I see a great deal of external uh, legalism that has entered in. I, you know, I think it's nice to have a prayer rope. It's fine, but it, it, unless you're praying, don't walk around with a thing. And, and we also have you know lay lay uh, married priests that look like try to look like monks and so on. It's okay. I've got friends. You know, I've got friends of mine that are like that. Uh, and I don't want to speak against them, but, but when, it, when, when it becomes a rule, when, when somebody says, this is the way you must do it, when it, well, that's just not true. I am troubled by that because I have found that, that legalism is utterly destructive. I know how to do the legal things. I understand that. I know how to keep the rules. But keeping the rules isn't going to get anybody into the kingdom of God. Only the grace of God gets you there, and legalism is off-putting. Now, you're not speaking. I, when I when I've heard people speak about you know hyper traditionalism or the traditionalism within the church, I'm I'm often 
asked by traditionalists and those that are more conservative, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about we're not supposed to fast and we're not supposed to follow the canons of the church and we're not supposed to do the things? What are you asking for, a lightening up of these requirements? Well, somebody, people, some people know more about the canons of the church than the canons know about themselves. Um, you know, there is big tradition. I don't want to get into big into this, but there's big tradition and there's little tradition. And, uh, you know, I grew my wife went to a, to an ethnic church. She grew up in a church where everything was about Swedish. And uh, it was just sort of funny to see all that. The I, I'm I'm all for the tradition of the church and I know what the fasting rules are. But I don't expect the people in my parish to act like little monks. But I expect monks to act like monks. Mm. I expect them to be that way. But when you lay that trip on every lay person and say, that's what you must do, I've got a huge problem with that. Mm. Secondly, I do have a... There's a phenomenon in America that is very interesting, uh, don't misunderstand me, marketing-wise. A McDonald's or a Burger King or an In-N-Out of the In-N-Out, you know, that's the best hamburger. Mm -hmm. But it's in a food court. I was in San Diego for many years, and we would have at least three burger places in the food court. And each of them would do better or they wouldn't have been there if they'd been somewhere else. One, the, one of the few disappointments I have and one of the dreams I had was raising up many, many, many Orthodox parishes. Now, I understand that, you know, uh, I have been involved in the starting, not, not necessarily the founding person, but I've been involved in the start of many parishes and... Uh, Two of them right now are in the process of of, uh, finishing their their church, okay? It's very difficult when you're trying to build a building and you've got somebody in the parish who is demanding we start a new parish 20 miles away. I understand. you got to be... There's realism there. But I honestly believe that there should be many, many, many more parishes. I, I... what was Father Peter Gilquist's greatest disappointment? Now, he was one of the closest friends a man can ever have. I knew his disappointments. He would, you know, for Father Peter, his glass wasn't half full. It was 99% full. He just always was positive. But he would have a pair, he would have a church ready to start, and it was 40 miles from the nearest parish, and a jurisdiction would complain that they were starting a church in their territory. Utterly ridiculous. And that has been a disappointment. Well, the turf, the turf battle issues within the church are, are kind of disappointing when you really look at it that way. That's true. Now, my dream in San Diego, and I made this clear the first month I was in San Diego, was my dream is to have five parishes from St. Anthony. Uh, that... I would have loved to have had that. It, it is, you can't have too many. Now, agreed, I don't want to, 
I don't want to start next door. You have to be careful about this. And there are practical considerations like supporting parishes and so on. And honestly, what does happen sometimes if you start a parish that's, let's say, 10 miles from another parish, you might have somebody in that old parish, they're just mad at the priest. Right. And so they just barge out. Revolving door thing. And and I hate that. But I really do think it would be so profitable. We need to start many parishes. that would that that would open the floodgates to many more people coming in. What we really need um, is we need to have someone within the churches look at distribution overall because there is a incredibly intense concentration of Orthodox churches in four states, mm-hmm. and there are many states across the U.S. that have no Orthodox churches at all. Uh, or in great distances. So in addition to starting new churches, we need somebody to kind of have a map and a strategic, and that's one of the benefits perhaps of having administrative unity, but that's another story. Father, I want to ask you this question. Um, do you think the idea of bringing in entire congregations into orthodoxy as a group, as happened with the um, EOC, and ordaining their pastor as a priest right off the bat, as Antioch did with the EOC, without seminary training, do you think that was a good idea? Should that continue to be used as a model for the future? Well, that's a really bad question to ask me, because that's just exactly what happened. And it has it has succeeded remarkably well. Here in the studio today, here in your studio, is a priest. He, he is an educated priest, but he's not a seminarian as such. Theologically, I'll match him to any seminary graduate you want me to match him to. And I would have matched him to that when he became an Orthodox priest. Uh, Our priests were not poorly educated. They knew what we believed. And frankly, even the people in our congregations were more theologically adept than in the average parish. I, that's, this is another thing where, where I admire Metropolitan Philip Saliba so much. He understood that if you're going to take a congregation, you take its leader. And do I think that should happen again? I, I was with Archbishop Joseph when he brought up a, a parish in. Of, I, I forget how many people, or it was a parish that was in San Dimas, California, and it was a wonderful day for him, a wonderful day for us. And he brought the entire parish in that day, ordained its clergy, and uh, I love what he did. Now, but understand, I just don't think uh, that some congregation comes along and they say, well, we'd like to become Orthodox. Kevin, you cannot imagine how many phone calls, especially 20 years ago, that Father Peter would get in one week from clergy that would say, well, I would like to become Orthodox. Uh, can, I have a, can I get a parish in the Orthodox Church? The answer to that is categorically no. They didn't want to take the risk. They, they wanted to just move from being a Baptist or a Presbyterian or Methodist and become all of a sudden an Orthodox priest. Terrible idea. Mm. But when someone brings a congregation with them and they want to become Orthodox, they have to be. They have to be catechized. They have to. They got to be prepared. So you're okay. You're okay with that model, Kevin? Our people were prepared, and it has proven to be a success. Twenty-five years and a few months later, every single parish that came in is fine. 
Some are astonishing in their success. None have been a disaster. We did have the Ben Lomond situation. But the parish in Ben Lomond itself is still doing well. True. It, it became part of the Greek archdiocese. There was that. that well, I that meant the other. That's St. Lawrence. Right. But the parish, the, the Saints Peter and Paul in Ben Lomond is still there and they're doing fine. Right. You know, one of the criticisms that I've heard is, I'm, I'm sure you have over the years, and, and I'm speaking with Father John Braun, is that the EOC group had a Protestantizing influence, by which I mean, I guess they mean, you know, bringing in Western Protestant teaching styles and kind of modernist or fundamentalist thinking uh, into the Antiochian Archdiocese. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's, I just can't fathom that. I, I think it's just, that comes from people who just don't know what happened. Uh, you know, Father Hopko from, uh, you know, the former dean of St. Vladimir Theological Seminary. Uh, very complimentary. He's, he's been such a good friend. I don't think you'd get that criticism out of him. Uh, we didn't bring a Protestantizing influence. If anything, if I were to be personally criticized for anything, I think you would criticize me for not being Protestantizing enough. Mm. I, I, I was so bothered. I was upset that nobody ever showed me. Why didn't it, there, Kevin, there was a Greek Orthodox church in the city I grew up in, mm. and I walked past it, and I didn't even know what the thing was. Mm. Well, uh, now, I'm not mad at the Greeks. Why didn't somebody tell me? Mm. Why didn't, how come I didn't know? Because their view of outreach was very different, and, obviously. And so, yeah, when I first became Orthodox, yeah, I, I was a little hostile and uh, tried to be temperate about it. I don't think we were Protestantizing. I think I can find you cradle Orthodox that are a whole lot more Protestantizing than we were. Okay. Let me come at this another way. Do you think that the, and I've thought quite a bit about this. I'm very interested to hear your, um, your uh, response to this. Do you think that the evangelical Orthodox Church's legacy may have been greater within evangelicalism than within the Orthodox Church itself you know, by making orthodoxy plausible for Western Protestants and evangelicals, as opposed to really changing the Antiochian Archdiocese or the Orthodox Church's approach. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Now, you must understand our goal was never to change orthodoxy. And that just, and Metropolitan Philip was very clear. He said, I don't want you to be reformers. Uh, he said that we need reformers, but we don't need you to be reformers. <laughs> and I, I, am, I, I agree with that. Uh, quite fully. Also, um, question for you is, you know, the EOC, as you pointed out, was was charged by Metropolitan Philip Saliba with growing orthodoxy in the U.S. And from 2000 to 2010, according to Pew and the Alexei Krindach studies done for the Assembly uh, of Canonical Orthodox, orthodox jurisdictions, in fact, grew by 16%. And that's more than the Catholics. They, they were down 2% during that period. And also uh, mainstream evangelical churches, uh, which were up 8%. So we grew even more than evangelical churches. However, this wasn't primarily from external growth or through evangelical conversions. It was rather through immigration, according to Krindach, in three jurisdictions, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, and the Malankara Syrians, or actually non-Chalcedonians. So my question is, Given the mandate given to the EOC, do these statistics 
surprise or disappoint you vis-a-vis the charge given to you by Metropolitan Phillips? And what are your thoughts on Orthodox evangelism now? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to take issue with this stuff. I've, I've read that, uh, those studies, and that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. But what I do know is that, uh, you know, we have a parish here in, uh, uh, in Orange County, and it's probably, what, two or three times the size it was when we came in. Uh, the, the parish in Eagle River, Alaska, it's just a delightful parish. Uh, I'm not disappointed in, in, in the growth. That there are, I'm sure, in the, especially in the eastern part of the United States where there were many immigrants that came in, uh, ethnic churches tend to diminish over time. That's just part of what tends to happen. Now, on the heart of your question, do I think we have fulfilled Metropolitan Phillips' charge to bring America to orthodoxy? I don't think we've set the world on fire. Uh, I don't think that's, I don't think we have finished that job, because I still believe that's what he wants. And I don't think we've done it. I don't think my generation is going to accomplish that. But I do believe that the, the next two generations are going to accomplish that. Uh, I look at my grandchildren and I think some of my grandchildren are going to be an instrumental part of that. Uh, I believe my children will be, a, a, and, and their peers, their contemporaries, will be a part of that. You, you can't get it all done in a day. Uh, but we do need to do that. That has to happen. You know, one of the things and the concerns uh, I have heard uh, when I was researching for this uh, interview, Father John Braun, is that the Evangelical Orthodox Church didn't really develop a... Um, succession plan, if you will, you know, and didn't really develop a second and third generation of leadership. And then after the original leaders go, and as I mentioned, there are only two of you with us, and thank God for that, that its influence will be over. Does that concern you? No, it doesn't concern me at all. First of all, we did prepare well. Uh, we taught our people well. And I am, um, there's not, I can't think, you, you got me on the spot now, but I can't think of one priest in whom, uh, uh, that were in the younger group that came with us. There's not one with whom I'm disappointed. Uh, sitting in this room with you is my, are, are all my kids. Uh, that's, I think that's remarkable in and of itself. Uh, two of my kids are clergy. Two of them are clergy, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. right? One of them is on the board of trustees of the Archdiocese of Antioch. Right. And it, I don't believe we did a poor job. And, and, you know, I hear that criticism from time to time. Okay, that's fine, whatever. But I don't believe it's true. I do believe we prepared well. And I do believe that that our parishes will be well taken care of. But what I don't believe is, is that we should be somehow something special. I, I don't see the Evangelical Orthodox Church. We voluntarily gave up that identity. Understood. That was one of Father Hopko's comments. He said, you're the only group that came that was willing to give up your identity. We understood that. That's what makes a good marriage. When both parties are willing to give up their, in, their identity as such and take on a new identity, we wanted to be orthodox, not evangelical orthodox. We just want to be orthodox, orthodox, orthodox. Understood. And I've, I've got a call coming in, Father John, from uh, Gary from Tustin, California. Gary, are you on the line? I am. I'm enjoying this. Oh, great, Gary. It's good to have you on. Uh, what's your question for Father John Braun? Well, I, I was formerly an evangelical in Orange County, where we've had hundreds of thousands of people um, profess 
faith in Christ. And yet I also know in the same community, there are probably still hundreds of thousands of people in this community who, if they actually knew what orthodoxy was, would be in our doors right now. And so I've been trying to find ways of talking to them and communicating with them. And I'm curious from your perspective, having all the, all the years of experience you've had, what have you found has not worked and what kind of things have really worked in helping to communicate uh, to evangelicals the, the, the value of the Orthodox faith for them? Just patiently communicating uh, your own experience. Uh, I don't think people like to be argued into becoming Orthodox. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't like it when we were on our journey that we were pushed hard. I remember. I can remember that day when Father Ted Wojcik walked into our parish in uh, near the University of California, Santa Barbara. My name's Ted Wojcik, and I'm an Orthodox priest. And he was our introduction. And it was astonishing. He never, never pushed us, but he helped us. And uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to leave Archbishop Demetri of the OCA out of this discussion. Uh, a blessed memory, as we say in the Orthodox Church. He was the bishop of the Southern Diocese. He was the the Orthodox Church in America bishop of uh, Dallas in the South. Uh, he came out to Galata. He spent to, that's the city we were living in. He spent weeks at a time with us and was so very helpful, uh, but totally patient. Uh, would say, you know, if you, we asked him, well, your grace, what should we do liturgically? Well, he said, maybe you should put up an icon. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, because what you're after, what you are after is, are the people you're talking to looking for truth, or are they trying to justify what they're in? Now, uh, I would have spent much of my life trying to justify what I was in. But on this journey... We were looking for truth. If a person isn't a truth seeker, you're, you're, you're wasting your time and you get into this. He, oh, we got to have all these apologetics and we got to prove that this is right and we got to prove the Catholics are wrong and the Lutherans are wrong. and all. That, that goes nowhere. Uh, I'll tell you how a person becomes orthodox. The Holy Spirit of the living God draws them. And if you talk to many Orthodox converts, they virtually all will say the same thing. They were drawn to it. Uh, now, the truth is, we, if, you, if you had in your parish 500 new converts next week, it would ruin the parish. <laughs> and it would kill the priest. It just can't be done. Uh, give us time. And by the way, that priest will do it. He'll, he'll, he'll take care of it. But uh, we must be... Just patient, just keep, just keep sharing, just keep talking. That's what Paul did when he went to Corinth. He just talked, just told the story. Gary, thanks for the call. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Father John, I've got a call from uh, Maine, from Scott. Scott, are you with us? Uh, yeah, hi. Hi, how are you this evening? Oh, Maine's too far away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful, <laughs> Beautiful I state. I have four parishes in the whole state, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Talk about distribution yeah, I, problems. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. <laughs> uh, I'm following up. I was actually the, the earlier uh, chat room question. And uh, in the situation where you have uh, one spouse who's kind of uh, leaning you know, towards the Orthodox faith and one who's not, 
Uh, I just wanted to know if there was any advice for, I mean, patience obviously is great, and I think I stumbled in that uh, a couple of years ago and, and, and have <laughs> kind of backed off a little bit. Um, but, but my question is, is, I guess for, and I'll just say, say essentially for me and, and my spiritual development without being selfish or uh, a bad husband, it, when you have sporadic access to, let's say, you know, normal parish life because you're attending a different church, what's the best route to go? Or I don't, you know, um, you know finding in a terms, father or that sort of thing. In terms of coexisting with a uh, non-Orthodox spouse is what you're asking. Well, yeah, well, it's to, to continue to grow without right. uh, causing division. Good, good question. Father John? Uh, you know, the uh, I, I have a friend who often says, just wish people would live like Christians. What we need to do in any situation, and uh, when I hear that comment, by the way, I say to myself, oh, yeah. We need to learn to live like Christians. I may have the doctrine of the Trinity down pat. I may be able to spell out the incarnation perfectly. I may, be, I may believe in all the basic tenets of the faith, but if I don't live like a Christian, I don't say much. And I'm not implying, by the way, that you don't. or that. But in a home where there's a divided spiritual loyalty, either none on one side or it's divided, you've got an Orthodox Catholic or Orthodox, whatever, just living like a Christian. One thing I love, many Orthodox churches, not all, but many sing every single Sunday morning, they sing the Beatitudes. What's so important about the Beatitudes? It's how you live like a Christian in the kingdom of God. That's what the Beatitudes are about. So what's the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, in many times, it's not a matter of blessed are the poor in spirit. It's blessed who can argue the loudest and, and, and beat the other one down. Are you talking about my marriage, Father? <laughs> we, we need to learn to be what it, what it is to be poor in spirit. I don't know everything. To be poor in spirit means I'm, I'm poverty-stricken in, in, in that area. So uh, I, I love the Beatitudes. I had an aunt. I, you know, some people have aunts, and some people have aunts, <laughs> and some people have aunties. And I had all three. I had an auntie that when I was 10 years old said she would give me $9 if I memorized the Sermon on the Mount word for word perfect. That's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I did. And I got my, I got my, my $10 and I memorized, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So since I didn't want a thief to break in, I spent it. Uh, but uh, here I memorized those beatitudes. So since I've been 10 years old, I have known those. But I come back to them over and over and over again. What's the best program for evangelism on the face of the earth? To live like a Christian. That's one of the problems that was so much of evangelicalism. We get all the scandals. We get all this preaching. And some of it's real. You know, I love good preaching. Uh, but it, it just loses its punch because people very often, even the preachers of it, us, don't live like Christians. 
we need to just simply labor to live like a Christian, and, and then you just let things fall. And, you, and you, you leave things to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the best way, I think, to deal with a, a spouse who has a different view. Thanks for your okay. call, Scott. Sure appreciate it. Thanks. You're welcome. Got two quick questions. We've, we've, we're winding down now, Father John, and uh, we won't be taking any more calls, and I've I got to get these last two in. Um, <clears throat> one of the vexing and challenging self-identity issues that the Orthodox Church still seems to be dealing with is, we've been talking about this throughout, is whether it's an ethnic church you know, or an inclusive church for non-Orthodox-born Americans. And one jurisdiction was recently polled, and over 50% of their members agreed with this statement, quote, our parish has a strong ethnic identity that we're trying to preserve, unquote. In the same poll, we find that foreign languages are still more prevalent in Eastern Orthodox churches, 46% of them, which I found surprisingly high, than in Roman Catholic churches, where only 25% of the services are in other languages, and in Protestant churches, where only 8% are in other languages. So my question is, do you think that the branding, if you want to call it that, of jurisdictions by old world historic connections, whether they be Greek, Russian, Antiochian, Romanian, Bulgarian, Serbian, I'm not picking on anybody in particular, and it's hard to break ethnic identity issue as an obstacle to bringing Americans to orthodoxy. You know, I ran into those figures, the same figures you just uh, gave, and, and I don't question them. Uh, but one thing you must take into consideration is the immigration patterns. Uh, Orthodox didn't come in any significant numbers until much later. America was colonized by Westerners, and most early immigration was from the West, just a tiny bit that wasn't Western. And then you start having the, the Greeks and, and, the, and the, uh, the Arabs uh, coming over. I, I went to Ellis Island, and I almost started to weep when I realized that this is where many of my really good friends actually came into America. And, uh, and many of them came in, through New, but in, in New Orleans, but it was so much later. And so it takes longer for those things to happen. And I like to be around people who speak English. I, I like that because that's my language. You know, I can stumble with some Greek. I'm terrible. I, you know, in, in Arabic, I can say yalla, uh, which means get moving and hurry. But I can't speak that language. But what I, I do like speaking English. The day will come, let's put it this way. My parents spoke Plautoich in the home almost every day. They never taught a word of it to their two sons. I just knew when they were talking about Hans, that was, that was I. That was John. I didn't learn that language, but I grew up in a multilingual home, in a bilingual home. Okay, that will go. It's, Greek kids in another generation or two aren't going to be speaking Greek, but I have no problem with yayas who want to speak Greek. Okay. Some of them don't even speak English very well. They're comfortable with it, but, but Kevin... That goes back to this, this, one dis, this disappointment I mentioned. We need more parishes. There need to be Greek Orthodox parishes where Greek isn't the language that is spoken. And uh, there are some, by the and way. And by the way, I know many uh, Greek priests who would agree with that. So it's going to happen. It won't. It's too late to stop it, partly because it's just simply true. 
It's it's the it, if the faith has made it for two thousand years, it's not going to quit tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, it's going to go on. If there's another two thousand years of human history, you're going to find an orthodox. Uh, you're going to find orthodoxy alive and well. So even though I uh, uh, agree I, that immigration thing, the growth being only that, uh, you know, that bothers me in the sense that I I, I do know that as in the eastern part of the United States, as the immigrants are gone, they've passed on. They're no longer alive, at least in this life. They're if if they're if they're people of God, they're still alive. But if they're not. Uh, here anymore, yes, those parishes do struggle because their children speak English, and many of them they they don't speak Slavonic, they don't speak Russian, they don't they don't. So that that issue will take care of itself. But we need more parishes. That's yeah. that solves that problem. No question. And America is a multicultural country, and so there's I'm sure room for you know parishes that want to be more ethnic and and others that that are more appealing, like our parishes to. Uh, non-ethnic or multi-ethnic uh, people. Father, oh, uh, one last kind of combined question, and then we're going to need to uh, end it this evening. It's been a fabulous conversation. Um, you know, in my estimation, orthodoxy has had very little influence overall on our culture. Part of it is that um, our bishops don't speak very much to the culture. They really don't. Um, they're very introspective and intra jurisdictional uh, respected. One of the earlier questions that I had was, was uh, on the chat room, are we paying enough deten- attention as Orthodox to modern day problems? Um, you know, like, and she listed several. Should we be responding to things like that? So my question is, what would it take for the church to become a meaningful voice in our culture? And what would you like to say as we uh, end our conversation about the future of the Orthodox Church in the United States in terms of her challenges and her opportunities. So first on, dealing with major issues, and then secondly, about the future. Okay, now, uh, I strongly believe that the church is supposed to sanctify a community. Uh, I believe that St. Barnabas Orthodox Church or uh, the various churches in in Orange County, I, I believe they're part of their job is, their very existence actually does have a sanctifying effect on the community. I actually believe that as a as a Protestant. I believe I still believe that. Now, I am not uncomfortable. I would be very uncomfortable and am when one of our hierarchs tries to speak to the outside culture a lot. I'm much more comfortable when our hierarchs speak to us and say we need to live in such a way. I think that's how you touch the culture. Uh, so you're not a culture warrior in that I sense. Am, I'm not only not a culture warrior, I'm uncomfortable okay. with that. Uh, because things get so theoretical and, and get so picky. And political. And oh, so. yeah. And, you know, over the next few months, there's going to be so many parishes where the discussion, not, not so many churches. Uh, most of them won't be Orthodox, hopefully. We're... There'll be so much political discussion in the sermons and so on. That, that's not our job. Our job is to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, and it will change an empire because it did. That's what, that's what the church did. It changed the Roman Empire, uh, it, 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 east and west. 
it wasn't changed because we argued well or because we spoke out to the pagan culture. Yeah, there's places for that. Some of us, that's, our, that's been our job. That's, that's part of what I do. But, but I'm very happy when the hierarchs, yeah, I want our hierarchs to talk to us and to our children about how we are to behave in this culture. But I'm very uncomfortable when they get out there and uh, start, you know, condemning. And then here's what we need to do. And it, it will become political almost instantly. Mm. And, and are you optimistic about the future of the, of the Orthodox Church? I, I think I know the answer to this. Well, I am incredibly optimistic about it. We didn't get here because we intended to get here. There is not the slightest doubt in my mind or anyone who was a part of the Orthodox Church, we got here because the Holy Spirit led us here. Well, the Holy Spirit has, isn't dead. Amen. It's still the same Spirit from all eternity, and the job is it's far from over. God is not through yet until, until the end. And mm. so, yes, I am very optimistic. Well, that's all the time we have this, uh, this evening. Uh, my guest has been Father John Braun ex-leader of the Evangelical Orthodox Church Movement and a great apologist and apologetic homilist and preacher. You'll be missing a great treat if you don't go to prudencetrue.com and listen to his stirring homilies, which are kept in archives tonight. And before we go, though, I'd like to announce the winner of tonight's Legacy Icon, and that winner is David from Yakima, Washington. So, David, you'll be getting that beautiful uh, icon that is the mosaic from uh, Agia Sophia in Constantinople. And thank you for listening, and thank you for uh, Legacy Icons for uh, making that uh, gift possible. Join me next time on September 16th with popular author of the best-selling books The Mountain of Silence, Gifts of the Desert, and Inner River, Kyriakos Markides will be my guest. And the title of that program will be The Inner Journey of Kyriakos Markides. Well, thanks to our Chesterton, Indiana production crew, to our producer, Bobby, our engineer, John, our call screener, Troy, and in our Southern California studio, production assistant, Jennifer, and for the entire Braun entourage that's with me this evening. Don't forget the father, Peter E. Gilquist, endowed chair, at St. Catherine College. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at AFT at ancientfaith.com or Kevin Allen at ancientfaith.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>